You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am so excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and you enjoy listening to the episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order you a copy. If you are listening after March 1st, run to a bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You would not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Go ahead and grab Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Yolanda Wilson. Yolanda is an assistant professor of philosophy at Howard University. Her interests include bioethics as it intersects with social political philosophy, feminist philosophy, and race. In this episode, we talk about health disparities, unique experiences of Black women in the healthcare industry, what does health justice look like, and so much more. Hello, Yolanda, and welcome to the Aunt Me podcast. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Tell me, I'm interested. How did you get interested in philosophy? So it's funny. I had to take a required course as an undergraduate. Was this an intro course? Yeah, yeah, intro. Yeah, yeah. So I was a political science major, and I'm not sure what my minor was that week because I went through a whole bunch of minors. But, you know, I had to, I had to take this philosophy requirement, and I was actually quite annoyed by it, right? I was like, God, I want to take this class and uh, just... I'm going to read these old white men. And I just, and so I took it. And the professor's name was Steve Thompson. And we had such a variety of things that we read in that class. I really found that I fell in love with it. I thought, oh my God, this is so interesting. It's so fascinating. You know, so we're reading the classic stuff and everything that you would kind of expect in an intro kind of survey course. And we're reading some contemporary things. And one of the pieces that we read, and I've said this kind of before on Twitter, and I've actually said this to this person, was by Anita Allen. Oh, okay. Yeah. For those who do know, not know, Anita Allen is by identification. She is an African-American woman philosopher. And it just did not occur to me that such a being existed, right? And I thought, huh, this is really interesting, you know? And so, so I remember when we were getting ready to read that piece, Professor Thompson talked about her and he's like, oh, and she was at Georgetown and she has a law degree. Well, I had wanted... I wanted to go to law school. That was actually why I was a poli-sci major, was to go to law school. And I, I just thought, wow, okay, so this is kind of interesting. And, and, I, and you know, for the life of me, I can't even remember what, what article it was, but I just remember being so fascinated by just the idea of a Black woman, academic, philosopher, who was also someone with a JD and doing legal theory, which I didn't know what legal theory was either. And so I just found her fascinating all the way around. And I enjoyed the class overall. And so I took a couple more classes. And then I took my political theory requirement in political science. And I found, oh, this is what I like. 
I don't like doing the state and local government stuff and presidential history. I mean, that's fine, but but I like the theoretical stuff. And so, and I also found I didn't like the poli sci majors as much, you know. And some of that may have been a function of being an undergraduate at Howard University, which was in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, when you're a poli sci major in D.C., I think that attracts a particular kind of person to that major. And I just wasn't that. I wasn't corporate enough or I didn't have other kind of political aspirations. I didn't care about hanging out on the hill and all of that kind of stuff. And so I found myself just kind of gently sliding into the the philosophy department, but I did not change my major as an undergraduate because I was already, I think, a junior. I think I had avoided that requirement as long as possible. So I was already a junior and I was on a full four-year scholarship and my mother had been very clear with me. And I think my father took this position too. You got four years. When the money runs out, I don't care. Degree, no degree. You got four years. Right? I mean, that's that working class, Southern Black <laughs> parenting, right? These people gave you four years of money to get a degree. You better have a degree in something at the end. And particularly with Howard being a private institution, yeah, a private HBCU, it's, it's not cheap. Or it wasn't cheap, at least when I, when I attended there as well. Let me ask you this question. I'm interested. When your teacher presented Anita Allen to you, did the teacher, did the professor make her identity explicit? Because it, it sometimes a lot... Uh, when people are making, teachers are making syllabi, even when they make their syllabi very, very inclusive, uh, sometimes that's not explicit to students, right? We may know, oh, I have, I have women or I have a mixture of, of diverse communities. But for the students to know that that is the case, that may go over their head. So th- did your professor make that explicit? Did you do your own research on your own? No, he How, how did you even know? He told us. He said very clearly, you know, she... And he he gave, and I really don't remember him doing that. Oh, no, 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 he did. Because we also read some stuff by Bill Lawson. So I remember him being explicit and with the people who were still alive, you know, with contemporary philosophers. I don't remember him doing a bunch of biographical stuff with the dead people. But but I do remember him saying, oh, you know, th- you know, this is Anita Allen. She's a Black woman philosopher and she was at Georgetown and now she's at blah, blah, blah. And she got her PhD and she has, right. This is how I knew these things about her. Right. And same, similarly with Bill Lawson. I think Bill was at Delaware at the time. Um, You know, he's a, he's a black male philosopher and, you know, he writes on these things and see, and I think part of it was also not just, you know, because we were mostly black students, I think it was also about making philosophy come alive in a way like, no, there are actually people walking around. And that seems very you know, probably basic to us, but I think we get kind of removed from that and don't think about how undergrads perceive philosophy or what they, what some of them may perceive philosophy or philosophers to be. So, so I think that was the other reason why um, he did that. And and what made you even go to graduate school? So you, you so you, now that you have, you, you t- you've taken these courses, you got attracted to philosophy, you, but you came out still a poli-sci degree Polytheon major. I did switch my minor though. That that was the last minor that I had was philosophy. How did I go? How did I go to grad school? Yeah, yeah. How, how did how did that dawn on you? So it's so funny. I thought, wow, this is something I really enjoy, and I I wanted to study more. I mean, I didn't. I, I was not that person who had. I don't know. It's so interesting to see grad students now. They seem so professionalized and so into what their career is supposed to look like, and they seem to have their dissertation topic by their senior year of undergrad and they come in and I wasn't that person. I just thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. I could take some more courses in this. I'd like to know more. I think I'd like a PhD, right? I mean, so there's a way in which 
some of my naivete worked in my favor because I think it gave me a way to to be open to just think to thinking about different things in philosophy and, and looking at philosophy differently. Yeah, so I said I want to go, you know, I, I remember saying to my parents, I want to go to philosophy, you know, I want to go to grad school in philosophy. And my parents poo-pooed that idea, actually. I was like, I want to study this some more. No, that's crazy. What happened to law school? <laughs> and I said, so, so then I thought, well, I'll do both, right? That was going to be the way that I, and then I thought, I don't really want to go to law school. So I actually started a master's in history. I went to graduate school in history first because my parents thought if this whole thing doesn't work out, there's a lot of things you can do with a degree in history, right? With a graduate degree in history. There was no vision of what one would do with a degree in philosophy, you know? And in fact, my mother was very explicit. Philosophy is for white kids with trust funds, and you are neither white nor in possession of a trust fund. So you need to go do something where you can get a job. And that and, and that was it, right? I mean, so, you know, I, I there's this economist at Duke now, Sandy Darity, who, who, who spent a good chunk of his career at UNC trying to encourage Black and Latino students in particular to pursue PhDs, right? And, and I think there's this perception that Black people don't value education. You know, that's the stereotype of and, and it's not that. It's that, you know, a lot of us have to be pragmatic about the choices that we make. And so high achieving black kid, OK, law school, engineering, med school, like, I under you know, that's something you can wrap your head around. This whole doing a graduate degree in philosophy thing, that took some convincing. But I dropped out of my MA program in history and, and ended up doing going back into philosophy. I just thought something is pulling me to this. I find it interesting. And, you know. Even in defiance of my parents, I was willing to to think about and study philosophy. And so that was how I knew, huh, I must want to do this for real. So so since I want to talk to you about, about health justice and the sphere of race specifically, it's important to, to make sense of what those in the biomedical field think about race. And we're going to get to racist plural later. But how is race defined in, in the biomedical sphere? I think... Just as you see uh, folks who do philosophy of race and and disagreeing about the ontology of race, you see some of that. You're seeing more of that in the biomedical realm, right? So I think that historically there are these assumptions about race as being, you know, well, now we'd say genetic or something like that or biological or, you know, this kind of naturalistic race is real in this kind of biological sense. I think you're seeing people pushing back against that and you're seeing people like Dorothy Roberts, right, who are saying, who, who are taking a more social constructionist view of race, right, that no, this is just a, race is, is a fiction. However, I think maybe broadly, the kind of dominant view is still about race as having some kind of biological, like some part of race, right, can be explained biologically. And so there are a lot of assumptions that are made about Black patients in particular based on this notion of race as being biological. So for instance, if you have cause to take a lung function test, there's a the kind of standard view actually in pulmonology is that black people have lower lung capacity. And so you have to reset these, recalibrate these machines in order to accommodate the fact that black people just naturally have lower lung capacity. What does that mean? I do work in more political. I have no idea. <laughs> What does what what lung capacity, what we can right. breathe deep or we can't breathe deep? What does that mean? Yeah. yeah, what is the volume of air your your lungs can hold, right? Just naturally. Okay, okay. And when you take okay. a deep breath. 
right? And so, so if you think black people just naturally have lower lung capacity, then when they breathe, you know, when you breathe into this machine that's supposed to measure lung capacity, then black people will look abnormal. And so the idea is where you recalibrate the machine when you have a black patient to, or you kind of recalibrate your sensibilities around what normal looks like to accept that a lower reading from a black patient is probably black people normal for lack of a more sophisticated way to describe it. Similarly with Bidil, which was a drug that came out, I'm going to say the late 90s. I'm, I'm kind of losing my, my, I'm not great with dates. Late 90s, early, early 2000s. And the idea was, well, Black patients respond to congestive heart failure medications differently. And so Bidil was the first drug approved by the FDA specifically for use in a patient based on race, right? Or racial categorization. So Bidil is the Black people congestive heart failure drug. You know, and there are problems with, of course, this line of thinking, regardless of, you know, even if you think there's a biological reality to race, part of the way Bidil would be prescribed is by self-identity or, you know, the physician looking at you and saying, oh, well, you look Black to me. I'm going to give you the Black people drug, <laughs> right? And we know there are all kinds of problems with that. Um, those of us who kind of think about race and how race works and looks, but also people don't always present the way they look or look the way they identify or, you know, so there are all kinds of, of problems with that. So, yeah, so, yeah, there is a, um, I would say, a kind of underlying or maybe not even underlying an explicit assumption in the medical community that race has these features that you can trace to biology. Now, does that mean that race looks to folks in the medical community the way that, say, 19th century scientists thought about race? I don't think that, but I do think that this notion of biology is kind of overdetermined in, in terms of um, what assumptions physicians make about race. Uh, oh, and just one more example. So there's very, a fairly recent study that came out, and, and this is more in line with what some of my current interests are, because I'm thinking about care at the end of life. Medical students, it turns out, and there are people in, people in the medical field, actually think that Black people's skin is thicker, and therefore we don't feel pain in the same way. I was just, yeah. Yeah. I was just discussing this with some of my TAs, because I'm teaching a class on philosophy of race. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, right. I mean, so, again, here's a way of thinking that race has some sort of, so the story is biological, is genealogical, right? That, you know, you pass down these these traits like super thick skin that makes you impervious to pain. So so I think that that's more the dominant view. Although, like I said, there are people who push back against that. So we, we hear the word health disparities being thrown around a lot recently. Tell us, tell us what are health disparities and what are some examples of racial health disparities in particular? Okay, so health disparities generally could be thought of as kind of unfair and pre- preventable burdens of disease, early death, violence that lead to shorter, sicker lifespans, particularly for marginalized groups of people. So, and and so this manifests a few different ways, right? So it might be something like diabetes, right? Black people get tremendous rates of diabetes. And I've said before in other environments that when I was a child, I thought that diabetes was just something that Black people got as they age, like gray hair or wrinkles or something. Like, I, I just thought that's just what you get. You just 
get diabetes and eventually maybe you have a stroke or you have an amputation or you want to die, right? Because so many, right? So I'm from South Georgia. I'm from a little town called Albany, Georgia. And my whole family, both sides of my family are from Georgia, not from Albany, but from Georgia. And, you know, it, it seemed like every Black person I knew over 50 had diabetes, you know, injected themselves with insulin. To, like, I knew the whole deal, the whole drill. And I just thought, oh, okay, this is just what happens, right? So diabetes is one of those things that is just rampant in African-American communities and also Native American communities, interestingly enough. And surprisingly, also Arab communities as well. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so I, I knew the Native American story and, and the Black story in, in the U.S. So, so that's an example where there's just this kind of disproportionate incident instance of disease, and we think that it could be preventable, and that some of that is tracked to unfairness in maybe other realms, even of access to healthcare or diet or whatever. Right. So that's one. Another example might be something, or would be something like breast cancer in in Black women. Black women actually do not have the highest incidence of breast cancer. White women get much more breast cancer than Black women do, but we die from it at much higher rates, much higher rates. And we tend to be diagnosed later, and we tend to have much more aggressive course of disease, and maybe some of that is connected to being diagnosed later, right? That's another example of, of health disparities, right? Another, and, and I know we can't just go on forever, uh, you know, I'm just trying to give you different kinds of right, right. asthma in Black children. And some think that that is traceable almost like you can literally almost trace it to the fact that black children tend to live in environments with poorer air quality. Right. So there's health disparities coming into kind of other sorts of justice questions around who lives where, what are people's environments like. And so that's what we mean by preventable. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you're mentioning this, right? Because some people may think that the racial health disparities exist because of due to the fact of race, right? Biological race. Right. So so black women are dying or diagnosed. So they may just uh, uh, suggest that this is all due to race. But you're suggesting that other factors that contribute to the racial health disparities. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this because this also has a lot to do with justice issues that we're going to talk about much later on. But you were talking about pollution or air quality. Can you talk a little bit more about those factors that contribute to the health disparities? Okay. So something like air quality becomes, you know, there was this really fascinating story. I want to say in the Atlantic, just, just fairly recently about this town in Mississippi. I want to say it was Lowndes County, which is where a lot of civil rights stuff happened too. But I remember Lowndes County because my father's from Lowndes County, Georgia. So I want to say it's Lowndes County. But what this kind of Black community, kind of rural Black community is facing is inadequate sanitation. So their septic systems are bubbling up. And if you look in their yards, like the septic system is backing up. And I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with septic systems, but um, <laughs> I grew up with a septic system because I'm a country girl, right? Your waste is kind of buried in the yard and I'm, I'm not buried. It's not like you go out and bury the waste in the yard. There's a tank, right? And it holds. And, and over a period of time, they get old and need to be repaired or replaced or whatever. And so, you know, the, the newscasters walking around and you can, and you're literally, the yard just looks muddy. So if you didn't know what it was, it just looked muddy. But it's literally just waste that is backed up in people's yard, right? Black people tend to live, and not just black, right? So this is this is kind of a race and class thing, ways that race and class intersect. 
But I don't want to say that there's one or the other because, well, that's a different conversation. But I think Black poverty kind of looks differently and, and can play out a little bit differently. So the sanitation system kind of stops at the city limits. And so you're left with these folks who are kind of fending for themselves with these septic tanks that are backing up. Poor Black people are also more likely to live closer to the, the town landfill or the town sewage treatment plant, more likely to live in older homes that may still have lead-based paint. And so those are social and economic justice issues that have direct impacts on health. I mean, we know what lead-based paint does to children now. We know that now. It's not a mystery. So why do we still have children in homes with peeling lead-based paint? I mean, you know, the glaring example here is Flint, Flint, Michigan. These folks don't have clean water in the United States, in a city, right? Not out in the country somewhere where you have to go get the well water. But in a city, the municipality doesn't have adequate water for the residents there, right? These are, you know, and, and actually this is, you know, now that we're talking about this and maybe it'll come up later, but this is kind of how I got into bioethics because, you know, I'm not really, you know, technically my area is social and political philosophy, but thinking about these political, these questions of political philosophy and justice, you know, I started thinking more about the health stuff coming at it from that standpoint. You mentioned mentioned class, and so this leads me leads me to my next question. A lot of us might think that as a as a black person's economic situation increases, their health outcomes would too. But there's been studies to suggest that it doesn't. Can you explain, in the case of African Americans, why the quality of medical care and mortality does not improve when their social economic status does? So there are a couple different ways that you can think about that question, right? Um, it actually we do see improvement as our social economic, as our socioeconomic status improves. We, we do see some improvement. That would be false to say that there's no improvement. What we don't see is the kind of improvement that you would expect to see with a rise in socioeconomic status, right? And then the other thing that you see is that, for instance, um, Jackson and Williams had this paper that came out, or I, I referenced it in a, in a piece that's coming out now. The other thing that you see in Black people and this particular study was about Black women, the highest socioeconomic status achieving Black women have worse health outcomes than the lowest socioeconomic status having white women, right? How is it possible? Across many metrics, right? And I think it's because, you know, our health is just so bad to begin with, right? right? That even as we make gains, right, our health status tends to improve over other Black people. But if you think how far behind the eight ball we start out, that still doesn't even get us to the level of poor white people. I mean, that's a stark finding and not across every single possible metric, but across many of them. Right. So our health. So you take, you know, a wealthy black person and their health status still doesn't look anything like a wealthy white person. And I think some of the some of the assumption is, oh, you know, as black people get better insurance and access to health care and diet. Right. So some of this is still very patient blamey, right? Black people are sick because Black people can't stop eating shitlins. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. The food stuff doesn't tell the whole story about what it is that we're doing. And food certainly can't explain that kind of finding. Or Black people just, you know, so some of this plays into stereotypes of Black, right? Black people are just fat and lazy. They did better than they would be. But no, there's something else happening. Some suggest that racialized stress is a factor that we have to take seriously. What does that do to your your heart, your blood pressure? 
to constantly be under stressful conditions. And being wealthy may insulate you from some of those, but then you have different kinds of stressors that may be connected to race. They might not look exactly the same, but but they don't go away. And then some of them are going to be exactly the same in terms of how you're treated day to day. You know, it's not like you were walk around with a sign on your head. No, no, I'm not one of those blacks. <laughs> right. Treat me better. <laughs> and I'd be skeptical of black people who thought that way anyway. So African-American female tennis player Serena Williams, who recently gave birth last year, documented her experience with the healthcare profession after her delivery. In an article detailing her experience, it reports, and I quote, Still gasping for air, Williams went to the closest nurse and told her what she felt was wrong. The nurse challenged her, but after Williams kept persisting, she was finally able to receive an ultrasound on her legs and a CT scan. Sure enough, the CT scan showed several blood clots in her lungs, end quote. This is, this is Serena Williams. There are, are self-reports by people across the country that not all patients suffer from this kind of treatment, even other women. And this is given attention at least I've read a lot of articles, to the unique experiences that Black women face in the healthcare industry. Can, can you explain to us this particular, what people call the healthcare gap in regards to Black women particularly? And, and why does it seem that it's most profound during pregnancy and, and birth? Okay. So, yeah. So Serena Williams talked about that in the Vogue article, right? That Vogue. The other thing that's really interesting about this, in Williams' case in particular, she had a history of having issues with blood clotting. So that should have been in her chart. So so not only did it, so right, so not only did she just know experientially, huh, something's off, right? She had this history that should have been documented in her chart, should have been very clear. And, you know, the nurse should have been on that. Now, some of that is, as I mentioned earlier, um, the belief that, oh, Black people just don't feel pain in the same way. And, and it's also with Black women, it's an intersection of race and gender. Right. Because there's this notion of women as just being hysterical about pain. Right. Even white women. Yeah, you're just hysterical. You're just being ridiculous. You're just being overly emotional about this. And, you know, just calm down. We'll find a man to explain it to you. Right. And there's this notion that black people in general either don't feel pain or are, you know, not bright enough to know what's happening with our bodies. And so it's this intersection of race and gender that plays out. In, in these particular kinds of ways for Black women. And I think you see it in these maternal fetal health outcomes. In other words, pregnancy shortly th- and shortly thereafter, and also with the fetus, precisely because that's one area where, you know, you, you're clearly seeing an experience that is a, a women's health experience. And I say that with an asterisk because we do know that there are other people who have uteruses and give birth, but um, what what we're seeing in the in the black one in the data, the health data around black women. But we see that in other areas too, right? Not just maternal fetal health. I also think maternal fetal health becomes a more dramatic example, not because it's not important, because it is, but also because just kind of culturally, there's this notion of what motherhood is supposed to be and how special and important motherhood is supposed to be. And, you know, bring a life into the world and the thought that you could be in danger trying to bring a life into the world is, is, un, is hard to fathom. But, you know, when we talk about complications and if you remember shortly before Serena's story, Beyonce also had significant pregnancy complications with the twins and she also had the experience where her healthcare team 
initially didn't quite take her as seriously. All right. Where she had to really advocate for herself. Now, these are two very high profile women. The most profile profile women, black women. Oh, my God. Right. And these are women who have private medical teams. These aren't women who are wandering into the county ER with no insurance. And they still have these experiences. So if they're having these experiences, what do we think that some the what do I think the experience of someone like me, who a professional woman educated has something that resembles insurance in this country, right? Or <laughs> someone who is poor and uneducated and no insurance, right? I mean, you know, Serena and Beyonce have a hand-picked team who still kind of miss stuff. So that's what's really frightening for me. The other part of the maternal fetal health picture is, of course, fetuses and newborns, right? Because maternal fetal health covers kind of fetal development and through shortly after delivery. Black women also experience high rates of infant mortality. And I think, you know, we we tend to have way more pregnancy com- complications, including preterm labor, you know, which, you know, thanks to medical technology, preemies aren't in the kind of, right, right? If you can kind of get later, you know, if you can kind of hold the pregnancy as late as possible. But it's still, you know, all things being equal, a full-term pregnancy is probably a safer, better pregnancy than, than an early-term pregnancy. But Black women ha- tend to have preterm labors and tend to experience infant mortality, which is calculated all the way up to death in the first year of life. So our babies are dying. What do you, you, we were talking about advocacy just a while ago. What do you recommend women of color do in order to continue to walk in their own agency when seeking medical health, despite these disparities? Because like, I, I would be terrified. I mean, if I was to become pregnant tomorrow, God forbid. <laughs> I will be not only terrified that I have a child, but I, I will be thinking about what happens when I get in the hospital, what could happen. But then on the other end, you know, I want to walk in my own agency. I want to be proactive. I want to speak to myself, speak for myself. But if Beyonce and Serena Williams um, is not getting any uptake, then I'll be concerned about myself. So what do you what do you recommend women of color do? You know, that's a scary question for me because, you know, and I don't want us to sound like we're just hopeless, right? But there are realities in terms of how we move through the world that we have to deal with and we have to take seriously. So, for instance, you know, all of the kind of a lot of the public health campaigns will push for self, you know, advocate for yourself. Don't be afraid to speak up. And those are great things to tell someone. I mean, it's like the Sheryl Sandberg lean in, right? You just have to lean in and it'll all be great. Well, when black women lean in, we know the consequences for that can be very different. And, you know, for instance, there was a case in Florida outside of Tallahassee a couple of years ago, this woman, Barbara Dawson, I don't know if you heard that story was in the news. Black woman in the hospital, in the ER, actually, refused to leave because she said, I can't breathe, right? I cannot breathe. Something is wrong. She was discharged, refused to leave. You know, trying to advocate for herself was probably agitated. I mean, I would be agitated, too, if suddenly I couldn't breathe. The hospital called security on her. And security called the police. And, you know, they hauled her out of the hospital and she collapsed right at the patrol car. Right before they could even arrest, you know, get her in the car and fully arrest her, she collapsed and, and she eventually died. I don't know what the answer is under those kinds of conditions, and, and we also know that some of that is going to be shaped by class, right? So I can. There are things that, as a black woman with a PhD and with insurance, I can say for myself that maybe others can't. So when my father was sick, right, and this isn't, you know, black woman's, this isn't self-advocacy, but I was advocating for him. My father was in the hospital. And I remember 
you know, I would meet the physicians and I introduced myself as Dr. Wilson. And that was intentional. The question is, do we have to play on privilege in order to be treated in the same way that some random, random white person would be treated? And what happens for black people who can't play on privilege in that kind of way? That's that's what's scary for me. And so I think some of that is going to have to come from rethinking what healthcare institutions look like and that healthcare institutions are going to have to think seriously about race and not just taking those implicit bias tests. I mean, they're kind of interesting and informational, but but fundamentally, structurally, what does it look like to care about Black patients in the same way? Because the other part of that is the onus shouldn't be on me to advocate for myself. And that, le- that leads me to my next question. What do you think is the duty of healthcare professionals as it relates to treating people of color? I mean, my immediate thing is like the oath, right? Do no harm and try to help. Um, but also, what do you suggest healthcare professionals and bioethicists do to better respond given these, these, these disparities? So one thing I think, and this is not just a health professional thing, this is a general white people thing, right? There's a way that white people can function in the world, in the United States, without knowing anything about anyone except themselves. And so it's also the case that their worldview is the dominant worldview, right? So what does that mean in the healthcare environment? Well, there's a, at least in within Black communities, there's a history of medical mistrust, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that Black people just will not do in the healthcare system, right? And some of, and, and, and old Black people in particular will tell you, no, nah, no, nah, that's okay. You know, because there's this view or belief that particularly at university medical systems, they're just going to experiment on you. They're not going to, they don't care about treating you. What does this mean for healthcare professionals? Well, if if that patient walks in, the answer is not dismiss them out of hand as crazy. But that's easy to do when you don't have any awareness of kind of what those real histories are and where those kind of cultural hot buttons are for Black people. So I think that healthcare professionals, since this is the kind of restricted domain for the question, certainly have a duty to understand and, and, you know, they're, they're, you know, in med school, you take a little cultural competency class or whatever, and, and there's all this kind of talk about sensitivity training and whatnot. But I think to really drill down on that and what that looks like, right, this isn't just memorizing factoids. It's taking people's concerns seriously, even when those concerns don't look like your concern. If you don't have a history where people were experimenting on you, I mean, J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology, right? I mean, he developed his um, procedure for correcting fistulas on on enslaved Black women, right? We know what we know, we being people in the U.S., about syphilis due to a natural history study down in Tuskegee that went on long after people understood that penicillin was a cure for syphilis, right? I mean, the study went went on in 1932. Certainly by the 50s, penicillin was standard treatment. So... And and to not think that those things would affect how entire communities view the healthcare system is, I think, absurd. So yeah, healthcare professionals, I think, have a duty to really understand history and culture, and not and again, not in a kind of factoid way, but to really understand what that, how that shapes people's worldview. Yeah, as you, as you were talking, I was I was thinking. I mean, we can psychoanalyze this all we want, but it made me think: is because of that history, to be honest, why I kind of refuse to get a flu shot? <laughs> mm-hmm. I would never you're, you're and have not, never. You're not the Get a flu shot because of those suspicions. Like, really, it, it's like generational. I mean, I, I just I just refuse. Right. It's generational. And so this is the other interesting thing about how that plays out. 
I think sometimes folks think, oh, well, those are just the uneducated Black people. Surely educated Black people know better. Well, we can talk about what we mean by knowing better. Trauma is there. If the generational trauma is there, it's there. And as we pointed out in these two other high-profile instances, you know, being wealthy doesn't inoculate, you know, right, you from experiencing less than attentive medical care. So this leads me to ask this question for you, given everything that you, that you said so far. What does health justice look like to you? For me, health justice looks like, you know, specifically in the healthcare realm, not suffering disproportionately from preventable disease, right? So that's one thing. It looks like having clean water. It looks like having a roof over your head so that you are not vulnerable to the elements. It looks like having access to medical care and not just access to a physician, but access to physicians who take you seriously and access to medical care so that you don't have to try to make a decision between going to the doctor and paying your rent or having surgery and going bankrupt, right? Medical care shouldn't bankrupt you. That is profoundly unjust to me that one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in this country is medical bills. I think it's number two, might be number three, but that's absurd to me. And that these things should just be kind of minimum baseline things that you can expect, regardless of what color you are, regardless of how old you are, regardless of your ability status. Because we can talk about, you know, I mean, I think it's, other, it's also important to think about the ways that people with disabilities, physical disabilities, have to navigate the healthcare um, environment in a very different way. So you receive your, your BA from Howard University, HU, just putting that out there. You can do it right. <laughs> you know, I you know, I'm trying to be professional. HU. Okay, you anyway. Know. Howard University is also also the place that you teach now. Yes. I always thought that it would be amazing to teach where you got your degree. And I think watching episodes of a different world and playing this idea <laughs> in me. Why did you decide to teach at your alma mater? You know, what's funny is now I turn the lamp off. It's funny because that was always my fantasy on some level. I didn't think it would happen this quickly. Right. But my fantasy as an undergrad and I had a couple friends, I won't name them, but I had a few friends and we were all kind of undergrads together. And that was kind of what we talked about, like, oh, we're going to come back to Howard and, you know, we're going to have this kind of. So at the time, I think this is maybe what inspired us. Skip Gates was at Harvard then and had assembled what people referred to as like this kind of black dream team of kind of black thought and intellectual life. And so that was, that was kind of what we said, you know, we're, we're going to all come back to Howard and, you know, we're going to have houses and like Shaw and LaDroit Park and we're going to walk to campus and it's going to be fabulous. And, you know, we're going to be these dope ass scholars, right? These senior scholars. And, you know, it just, it just ended up happening much more quickly than I expected for a series of events. You know, life just happens. I ended up back here much more quickly. Did any, did any of your, your your group of friends join you? No. Those bastards. Now that, that would have been too perfect. That would have been too perfect. I know, right? I know. That would have that been, a, that would have been the work of the angels. I know, right? So one is in Montreal and several are in New York. I think one is in Florida somewhere. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, didn't happen. So this, this last question is, is rooted in a short conversation that we've had before. But I want to take this time to kind of dig a little deeper. So you are a self-described Southern woman. Very much so. Why is that identification important for you? 
Southern black woman. <laughs> Southern black woman. Why is that? Why is that important for you? It matters to me. Well, a, a few things. One, I think that in the U.S., I don't know what it is about New York. People love New York and affiliations with New York, and there's this kind of notion that New York and maybe Massachusetts, well, the Northeast, right? New York, Massachusetts. That there's this is the seat of American intelligentsia, and you know if you don't have that pedigree or if you don't aspire to be in that orbit, that you know maybe it's because maybe the skills just aren't there, or maybe right. But and there's a kind of devaluing, I think, of the South. There's this view that we're all just stupid, we're backwards, and I think it's important, right? So I know people who are from the South literally from the South, right, who go to New York and, you know, they drop their accent and they, you know, adopt these very kind of urbane ways of... No, no, no. I don't want to, I don't want to internalize. Now, I'm not from deep down South like you. I'm from Virginia. Now, I have moved up the Northeast in my life. The dropping the accent thing, sometimes that's, you know, if yeah. you, if you do that young, it's not your fault. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about like moving somewhere and picking up accents because you're around those people or, or, you know, being young. I mean, I know people who literally make that decision. Like I am going to sound like I am from here. I'm going to adopt this very urbane aesthetic, you know, so that I can move and fit in and look like I belong. And I don't know how much of it is just me sort of not caring about belonging in that way or not being as enamored of the Northeast in the way that others are. But I have never been ashamed of my roots and where I come from. And for me, it's very important to identify in that way because I know that there are other people like me who have that story. And there are people coming behind me who want to be able to look up to someone who, you know, I don't, need to pretend that like I'm from somewhere other than Albany, Georgia. And it's also important for my own sense of who I am as a person. And so there's sometimes when I'll say, and this is actually true, right? This isn't me being dramatic, that I'm one generation out of the cotton fields. My daddy picked cotton. He picked cotton, he picked tobacco. He'd go down to Florida in certain times of the year and pick oranges. That's a part of who I am. You know, we would drive through the country and he's like, those are peanuts right there. Those are pecan trees. I'd be so bored with that. (laughs) But right, so there's class, there's region, there's race, there's gender. All of these things converge for me. And I know that the minute I walk into, certainly when I walk into spaces that are traditionally thought of as kind of middle-class white spaces, I stand out. I've been at the APA and somebody thought I was there serving drinks. Like, how am I serving drinks? I got on a name tag. Or in the hotel lobby to get a speaker and get proposition because somebody thinks I'm a whore. It's like at the double tree, honey. You couldn't afford me. Not the double tree. I'm going to be at the double tree. All right. Or, 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 you know, in the department and, you know, a guest speaker comes in barking orders at me because he assumes I'm the secretary, which I'm like, even if I were the secretary, that's very foul of you to come in barking orders at me. So I already know that just my very presence means something different. So I just never saw the sense of trying to go through those extra motions and proving that I'm the right kind of negress with the right kind of Northeastern pedigree or at least Northeastern aspirations. That's not who I am. And, you know, it may work for me, probably works against me, right? Because now I'm really marked as different because I don't even try. (laughs) But I'd rather be me unapologetically. I like that. I like that. 
Well, Yolanda, I've learned a lot, girl. And I've also laughed a lot. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. This was so fun. <laughs> I want to come well, back. Like I'm well. already saying that. I'm like, <laughs> I want to just have like <laughs> a regular season <laughs> feature where, you know, it's like, okay, this is Yolanda's episode. Let me also just put this out there. A lot of people, some people think that we are the same person. Oh, my God. Because, because we have dreads and we wear glasses and we're both the same complexion. So this is proof that we are not the same. I can't talk to myself. We are not the same. We should talk at the same time to prove it. Like, you know, because they could just think you're in here doing voices. They could just say you're in here doing voices. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.